Welcome, guys, to the Cup and Nurses podcast with your hosts, Matt Slarchik and Peter Fendero. What's up, guys? Peter, how are you doing today? It's a beautiful day. I'm doing good. It was a cool start to the day. It was in the 50s in the morning here in Chicago, but now it's progressing to the warm 70s. Probably not. Probably like 60s. <laughs> I know. I've been thinking about travel nursing ever since it's getting so cold. Mm. Have you have a, you have a set date for this travel nursing stuff? I do not. Yeah, but good thing we got the travel nursing checklist for you. It's going to remain mysterious until I would just put in two weeks. Yeah. I don't like um, gossip. And anybody that listens. Yeah, so that's not going anywhere yet. Yeah. Maybe next year, maybe next month, maybe next week. I don't know. Stay tuned. If you see an empty chair next episode, you know why. Matt's gone. Yeah, Peter's going to talk alone. I'll use um, Susie. Susie from last episode. So, guys, we are a podcast where we tackle hot nursing topics, current health news, and anything related. Thank you guys for listening. Please subscribe on YouTube. Give us that nice five-star rating if we deserve it on the podcast. And only five stars. And today's episode, we'll be talking about patient education, a few tips and five strategies for you to implement in your hospital. We're also going to talk about medication called Zantac. That's a common medication that we, we use or that people use for heartburn that you can just get over the counter. Yeah, it's um H2 inhibitor yeah. for the receptors. And it's funny because this medication, guys, has been out since 1981. It's been on the market for a while now and all of a sudden the food and drug administration decided to say that it's being pulled off the market this was um in september of 2019 that it's um it has um carcinogens in it yeah the actual carcinogen that they're saying that's causing this cancer is a medication or a, a additive called ndma not to get confused with mdma that will lead to different kind of symptoms not just maybe, not maybe they put mdma and then everybody's going cuckoo maybe that's why everyone's buying it you know man Chopping it down, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so this medic, this additive NDMA is has been shown to cause cancer. And this NDMA was also in uh, another cardiac medication. Losartan. Losartan. That's why it got, got pulled off the shelf as well. I wonder what other medications like that consist of. Because they're probably getting pulled off the shelf. There's a too. few. And it's when I did the research on this, this chemical is used in like toilet cleaner products. So I don't know if it's used to cut this medication out or make it a longer shelf life. But now the, you know, because the Food and Drug Administration, they don't do their own research usually. They use research from other sources or from the drug itself. And they look at the, the results and say, okay, it's safe. Right. So if you bought your big bulk from Costco, you could use it as a toilet cleaner now. You know, dissolve it in some water and wash your toilets instead of taking it for your heartburn. Yeah. And anybody that uses Zantec, so, or don't know what it is. So basically it's an H2 blocker. And what it does, it decreases the acid in the stomach. And it's usually over the counter and it kind of helps with um, like acid indigestion or just kind of coating a sour stomach is what they kind of call it. Yeah, the main people that use medication are people that suffer from something called GERD. And GERD happens, um, I think it's about 14 to 20% of people have gastric reflux. What does GERD stand for? So GERD is gastroesophageal reflux disease, basically. For people that don't know. And what... The mechanism behind this is you have a, a sphincter in your esophagus. It's called a lower esophageal sphincter. Same way you have a sphincter in, in your ass. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it per- serves the same purpose. You know, it, o- it opens to let things down and it closes, you know, to keep things from not from backing up. And people, some people have, have this issue where if they eat a lot of um, spicy foods or certain kind of foods, make their stomach produce more acid and that acid kind of builds up and it kind of pushes up against the sphincter and the sphincter op- opens up because technically they don't have a, properly functioning sphincter yeah, or a little bit weaker or it's been damaged in the past just because of that acid does burn a little bit. So anybody that doesn't know what a sphincter is or still doesn't understand it, it's just basically a valve from the esophagus and whatever you eat, 
it just closes everything shut in the stomach. And what happens is you eat spicy food, alcohol, you smoke, correct? And oh. if you have on, I thought you say <laughs> you smoke crack, but you said smoke correct. Okay, <laughs> smoke. Maintain if you don't if you're overweight, um, specific foods. What happens is that sphincter doesn't close as properly, and you start having acid um, leaking, and it starts kind of trailing up the esophagus. So some people that might have symptoms from this is bloating. You might feel like you have something stuck in your throat, but it's really not there. It's just the the reflux, or you might have a little heartburn going down the esophagus. And some people they use a tums, which is calcium bicarbonate. Yeah. And what they do is they decrease the acid, but that's just you putting a bandaid, like always, on a buffer. the symptom. Yeah, yeah. So some people take like a handful of tums just to get it down because sometimes it's, it's that severe. But like Matt said, a lot of things that so a few things that that cause cause GERD. You know, a lot of times it's improper emptying of the stomach or delayed emptying. If you have some other intestinal issues going on where you're overproducing acid or it doesn't um, get drained properly, that also pushes the acid up and does cause cause a GERD. And some people, maybe they want to take a more natural uh, way of curing their GERD, or if you have it and you don't want to take Zantac, or you're listening and you feel like, oh, I think I have those symptoms, and I just never knew what they were. And here are some alternatives to prevent them. One of them is um, maintaining a healthy weight. So excess amounts of weight on the body kind of pushes pressure on, on the abdomen, and it also pushes the stomach, which in return pushes the acid up into the esophagus with the sphincter right yeah another one would be to stop smoking like we all have heard this before smoking affects everything in your body and it does cause the sphincter to not work properly i'm not sure if it has to do with like the blood flow because nicotine constricts your vessels correct i'm not sure if it has a, has a issue with, with doing that or maybe because it raises your blood pressure but you know when we smoke we breathe it in so it's going to go into all our cells and all our organs and plus when a lot of people smoke they also swallow whatever's yep. left over in that residue and that probably Increases your stomach acidity as well. Yeah, one time when I smoked and I like burped, I just had smoke come out too. So mm. there you have it. You swallowed a cigarette or something? <laughs> no, <laughs> swallowed some, you know, smoke. Um, another one is don't lie down. Um, that could be maybe, let's just say, before a meal or maybe it could be a nap. You want to probably wait two or three hours before you lay down or before bed because having that food sit kind of causes a gateway to having that sphincter um being pushed and you yeah. might you might wake up with like you know an acidy esophagus or a throat and don't know what that is yeah it's recommend that you don't lay down until three hours af after a meal and speaking of meals then you also want to chew your food properly just so you know it, you know you chew it and your acid isn't you know um breaking down whole chunks of, of meat instead of smaller ones like if you make a burger on, on a pan compared to if you chop out chop out the, the, the burger and make like, you know, like, like sausage crumbles or whatever. It cooks quicker that way if you think about it because, you know, the oil goes around it more. Same, same with your gas. There's more uh, surface tension to go around. And plus, like digestion starts in the mouth. It starts with saliva. And saliva is actually a buffer that helps coat everything to help with the first process of digestion and turning it into chime is what they call it, right? Yeah, I think it's chime. Chim, chime. Good, chime. Good, old, chime. good old like nursing 101 um, revisitation there. There you go. Your or anatomy food. even. So you you want to chew your food. And it's it, it's even called like mindful eating where don't look at your cell phone. Don't look at your food. Like take your take that 15, 20 minutes and actually look at what you're eating and and feel it and put it in your mouth and enjoy it in a way. Not just mindlessly eating because you know how nurses even eat too. You're eating in front of the nurse's station. Don't watch TV. Just actually 
create a good, healthy relationship with your food. Yeah. People always tell me that I should let on with my eating because I don't enjoy my food. Just because I, I eat so fast, but I do I do enjoy it. It tastes good. I want to eat a lot of it, you know, put it all in the mouth. Like that? I guess. Another one is relaxation therapy. So, you know, like meditation, a lot of stress. Like you mentioned multiple, multiple times before, it affects your GI tract and, you know, esophagus is part of your, your GI tract. So a lot of times if you feel a lot of stress, you're stomach kind of constricts a little bit or you just overproduce acid in general just because of all the hormones you're releasing. That covers it there. Yeah. We are GERD-free. And if you have it, another one. Uh, we kind of touched about it, but make sure you're avoiding all the foods that are triggering your GERD. That's alcohol, foods that are very processed, deep-fried foods, alcohol, of course, and... Um, Smoking. Caffeine is on there caffeine, as well. That caffeine. I'm sure caffeine, yeah. Because I don't want to take caffeine in like makes me poop more frequently, yeah. more loose. It gets things things churning. But so the next thing, so a lot of stuff that goes on in, in a hospital, a lot of discharges and issues going on. A lot of times people neglect patient teaching or even when we when we chart, we kind of just bypass it. We just zombie-like just chart. Yeah, we talk, taught the patient about central lines. We taught them about sepsis or, or the plan of care. A lot of people neglect actually going to them actually teaching the patient about this stuff. So we're going to offer you guys a few tips and strategies for you to better educate your patients just to prevent readmissions. Readmissions are a really big issue going on and it's very costly for the hospitals. It is. And we as nurses, I feel like we're the jack of all trades in healthcare. I feel like back in the day, it was a physician's role to provide education and they still do with procedures and things like that. But afterwards, nurses are the core, core being of the hospital to provide education when it comes to discharge bedside education every single night that they're there and i feel like that little section in the in the charting system always gets neglected and i i'll say it myself too sometimes you just like half-ass that charting because you have no time you're running behind but the question is is sure you're half-assing your charting but how are you educating your patient bedside and that's what's crucial yeah and we clearly see that one of the main causes of readmissions is is poor teaching especially for like or or patients that you know come in for like hip replacements or or things like that that are more um, it's like a drastic surgery but they're all they're pretty much healthy for the most part except they need like a new hip or, or like a new shoulder or something going on in the, in the bone aspect where now they might need to be on anticoagulation or they might be on medication now or they come in the hospital they haven't been there for a while now they get treat, diagnosed with a bunch of things hypertension now they get thrown a bunch of pills upon discharge and that's when a lot of times uh, teaching falls off and basically is readmitted because they're not sure what the signs uh, and symptoms of their medication is to, to warrant coming into the hospital or, or getting in contact with your physician. And a very basic one could be like heart failure, right? There's so many patients that are diagnosed with it and they get sent home with different medication like Lasix and antihypertensives, things to help with their contractility. And they're, they're told to avoid sodium, right? To monitor it and then also monitor your weight. If you gain more than is it 2.2 kilos? It's one pound. One pound in that's a single 24-hour. You're supposed to let somebody know like your primary doctor because what happens is this patient doesn't weigh themselves. They wait two, three, four, five days, whatever the case might be. Their feet start swelling. They neglect that as well. They go into fluid overload. And most of those patients, they come in within a 30-day time frame for something that's very, very simple something that could have been prevented, like taking an extra dose of Lasix, which is an antidiuretic, and that would help you get rid of the fluid. But no, 
they wait till they feel like they're freaking drowning in their own body and they get called an ambulance at the hospital. Yes, yeah. yeah, so Lasix is actually a diuretic, not an antidiuretic. Correction, so diuretic. Diuretic, yeah. So yeah, a lot of times like they can just give the extra dose of Lasix and you know, a lot of times we say try to eat a low sodium diet and we tell them you know, to avoid salt. So a lot of times what patients do is they stop putting salt in their foods but they still eat the same salty foods from cans or from whatever because these people come from different social economic backgrounds and when you say avoid salt, to them, that means to, hey, not put any more salt on, on my eggs or, or certain things, but they're still eating these high, high salt foods, which as you get touched upon as well. But that just depends on your patient population. And and we as a healthcare profession, anybody that's in nursing school, becoming a nurse, thinking about it, or are a nurse, we have to understand that more than 50% of Americans in the healthcare field are illiterate. They don't understand the basic little things that we do. They don't understand how to read nutrition labels and how sodium is in all these canned foods. They think, just like you said, it's just sprinkling the salt and it's really not. So we have to really dumb it down, guys, and give people the proper tools, the proper mindset to educate them, to prevent healthcare readmissions, which in return is going to help our country and maybe get you another raise at the end of the year. Yeah, I've actually had a patient that they know how to read, but he didn't tell me and nobody disclosed information to me. So I had him for like, what, so probably had him for two nights. Well, I had him for three nights, but I found out on the second night. I gave him like a pamphlet to read and he's like, okay, thank you. He didn't tell me he was, he was illiterate. And then like a, the nurse that I gave reports to is like, you give him reading education? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you know, he doesn't know how to read. I'm like, no, I did not know that. He didn't tell me anything and you know, it wasn't anywhere in a chart. And like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put it in. But sometimes it's kind of embarrassing for patients to say, hey, I can't read. So they're kind of just, just be like, yeah, or they're, or they're not their head just for you, just so they don't feel embarrassed or they are embarrassed that they know how to read, but they don't want you to think less less of them that they don't know how to read. Or so it's very so it's more common than you might think. That and like imagine how stressed out they are with what's going on or they have a new diagnosis, they have a new procedure, they're nervous, they have anxiety, they fear. And here you are trying to teach them in that kind of state. Like their their mind is not set to teach. They're not ready to learn. They're not ready to take information. You have to somehow cross that barrier with them and you know, assess with them whether the education that they're getting is proper. Exactly. And with the whole, you know, unable to, to read thing, like a lot of our education that we, that we give, a lot of stuff that we do in the hospital, it's all literate. It's all based on literature. Like we come in a room, we write on our whiteboard. You got to write your name, you know, your phone number, and they can't read that. And even when you put the TV on, sometimes you have like the, the therapeutic communication channel going on where, you know, they're, they're writing stuff or they're doing something and, you know, he doesn't know what that means. It's very, very scary. Like you have signs all, all over the place and he's been illiterate, so he can't read any kind of sign. It's, that'd be, it's so scary. And now, like Matt said, you throw him in a hospital where they lack control of what's, what's going on and they're sick and they're having undergoing a bunch of these changes. That's super stressful. It's very sad as well. And now he can't provide this good teaching because he's scared to tell you that he doesn't know how to read. Yeah. And eventually, the longer you're a nurse, you're able to have the holistic approach to medicine. Like you're able to take that one patient and you're able to find out like what's going on. And let's use an example of a patient that has pneumonia. Um, let's just say they came in for sepsis pneumonia. Like the patient comes in, they roll in and they have family, they have no idea what's going on. And me having my experience, I know already like the plan of care, right? And I usually like to educate the patient of everything that's gonna happen tonight, just so they have a general idea of how the night's gonna go by. And you should do that. So. Listen, you know, you came up for the ER. We're going to give you antibiotics for the reason why. We're going to repeat the x-ray. Why? 
and explain everything of what's going on. Or if they have pressers where I explain why they got a central line placed, why do they need it, and explain everything to the family that's going to happen for that shift. And they have sometimes closure or a peace of mind, not that things are up in the air, oh, something might happen in the hospital. Yeah, that's actually a really good approach. I think every nurse should take that approach where you should explain everything you do to everybody in the, in the room just so everyone's on the same page. And you can you won't ever over-explain anything just because this is such a new thing to them. And it's just a constant learning process for the but patient and family. And when it comes to being a new nurse, sometimes you're so focused on the tasks and everything that has to be done or you're looking at orders that you're not able to kind of grasp the idea of everything that's happening. And it took me a while, man. I think... A good two and a half years, two years is where I was able to really put the puzzle pieces together and understand the care of every single patient, how their kind of night's going to go by. Right. Yeah. Especially since, yeah, like you said, when you're a novice nurse, you don't know everything yourself yet at all either. So it's kind of, sometimes it's hard for you to explain something because you yourself don't fully understand what's going on. You just know that you have to do this, this, and this, but you don't know why. So it just takes a little bit of time of being proficient and actually doing the task. Then you can finally understand why you're doing these tasks. And then you can explain to another individual. But back on readmission, so 14% of patients in the United States get readmitted. That might seem like a small number, but that entails millions and millions of, of dollars. And the HRRP basically has these standards, uh, the, the core measure standards, core where measures. they focus on on these one, what is six main, eight, seven main things where they really look at the readmission. So it's chronic lung disease, coronary artery bypass surgery, heart attacks, heart failures, hip and ear placements, and then pneumonia. So that's seven, I say six. But yeah, so these are the ones that, like the main ones that they look at for readmissions. But these seven are basically everything that people come in for. Yeah, and not only, but these core measures are backed up by science and research, and they have the evidence base behind how things should play out, and every hospital is held accountable to it. Just like you have a patient has a stroke, their core measure is to get that patient into a CT scan within, what is it, 35, 35 to 30 minutes. Like 30 minutes, yeah. 30 to 45 30, minutes, yeah. something. And within, I don't know, is it three hours? I have to look up the core measure. So, yeah, stroke. so that one is, it's like 30 minutes to an hour, hour with the CT, probably 30 minutes, I want, I want to say. And then to decide if it's ischemic or hemorrhagic. And then you have three hours from their last normal to give TPA is the standard. I know some hospitals do like four hours or five hours or, or six, but that's just, but the standard is, is, is three. Then you yeah. could obviously change it up a little bit just because you for strokes, you it's a targeted therapy where you these are the two things that we, that we gotta do. It's either we're gonna need a you know revascularize the area if, if we can, or we're gonna need a need a TPA it. Yeah. And that's a core measure that every hospital should follow. The CMS, which is a core, it's a government body that hold, holds hosp- hospitals accountable to that. And now they're adding, for example, sepsis to that, meaning if you have two blood pressure, if you have a patient as a lactic, you have to give fluids, you have to give antibiotics, you have to um, repeat the you know three serial lactics, you have to do blood cultures, and I think there's something else. And if there's two blood pressures with less than 90 or a MAP under 60, you have to start pressers. And that's a core measure that supposedly in 2020 they're going to really push for. Right, yeah. Yeah, so these seven issues are so common with these remissions that where they're actually standardizing this treatment because... They have to make sure that everyone's getting good treatment because otherwise these are, if you get these things done, you're more likely to come back in 30 days if these things aren't done efficiently. If you're not properly treated for, for a cabbage or a heart attack or heart failure, you're going to come back in 30 days because those are like serious life, life-threatening life injuries. It's not like, you know, 
diabetes where, where it forms over time. These are acute issues that happen. And if you're not properly treated, you're going to come back to the hospital or you're going to end up dying. Yeah. And just for clarification, just to find out how severe this is, in 2011, um, hospital readmission cost annually for all of the United States was $41.3 billion of unwanted costs from readmissions. And when we look at um, in 2018, the Medicare cost, it was $26 billion annually. And they're saying that $17 billion a year of that spending could have been avoided for hospitals after discharge, according to the data from the Center for Health Information and Analysis. Yeah, so imagine that money being put somewhere else into like prevention or, you know, building walls for Africa or, or, or something something like that that's more for our, for our health. Like prevention clinics, you know, people are suffering, you know, and one of the things we, we lack the most here in the United States is prevention. Mental health is also a big issue. You, you, you see mental health facilities and clinics closed on all the time. Imagine 17 billion putting being put towards something like that to better our well-being and everyone else's well-being. Yeah, and I don't think we sometimes understand the. It's also, you know, you say I, only one person does it, but you know, if people continue doing it, people push for it, there's going to be a change that happens. Yeah. And what Medicare started doing too is they started holding hospitals accountable. I think in 2019 is after the Affordable Care Act started, every single hospital is going to start getting paid penalties. And I think it's up to 3% three of reimbursements that the Medicare withholds from the hospitals because of these weird emissions. Yeah, and that's, that's I mean, that's that's kind of both patient and hospitals fault. You could say it just, I guess it depends on where you are and how good your hospital is and your patient population. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I see it being fair that they, you know, penalize people. So they penalize up to 3%. So if your uh, readmission rate is 1%, you get 1% penalty. It goes, goes to 3%. Unfortunately, if it's 10%, then obviously you're going to get fined the 3%. But that's still, if your remission rate is 10%, that's, that's, that's a big chunk. And I'm sure some hospitals have even higher because if the average rate is 14%, then there's for sure some hospitals that have like 20, you know, 15%. That some hospitals have like maybe 1% or 2%. But so readmissions are a big issue. That's within 30 days, right? It just starts pissing me off where the hospital is having this issue. We have meetings about it. But what they start doing is they start cutting costs to you know facilitate this kind of whatever problem and what they do is they start cutting us they start cutting our little things that we enjoy like getting gift cards for our birthdays to go downstairs to the cafe like little things like that and it could be maybe raises they start kind of threatening or what they start doing is i've noticed they start getting shittier equipment the foley catheter kits are not as good or they're getting you know shittier iv start kits and then if you wonder well you're paying less for a foley catheter kit but now UTIs are going up and now we have more, you know, urinary tract infections. Their solution is, oh my God, we got to take out the Foley's earlier. Why does that patient have a Foley? And now this is a big thing of Foley has to be removed. We straight cath that creates more room for infection. So instead of solving the real issue. Right. Or they say, you know, we got to do in-services and we got to provide more nursing teaching. But, you know, you can teach me how to put in a Foley, but if the, the, the thing, the piece that you insert a Foley with isn't sturdy enough or it's you know, poor quality rubber, then obviously it's gonna take me a few tries to get it in. And then that's kind of not fair. Like we recently got new A-line tubing and, and swan tubing. I mean, I don't mind them. Uh, they probably switched because it's probably cheaper, but we'll see how, how that plays out. It's, I mean, same, they have the, they do the same thing, but it's just kind of a little bit different. Like instead of like a clip to squeeze the water through the pressure bag, it's not like a little nipple that you pull. Uh, interesting. It's, it's kind of goofy for a lot of things. Even like we had, um, 
you know, they do skin meetings once a month or twice a week where, or I'm sorry, twice a month, usually when a group of nurses checks everybody's skin and they see if it's chartered properly. Well, supposedly we weren't checking the patients, you know, um, four eye skin assessment and their way of intervention was to have a binder where people have to, the person that goes on the shift and leaving, we have to sign off for each patient. And they put a giant, uh, poster on the, on the door before we leave. Don't forget to sign your binder. Well, it's not even a legal document. And we all said like, what the heck is this? So we started resisting it technically and people weren't signing it. Um, one month later, no one talks about the binder and it just, it's just funny. They always find a way to punish us instead of ways to make our job easier sometimes or yeah. hear us why we should do A, B, and C. Yeah, a lot of times their idea of making a solution is to, hey, let's punish the nurse. Yeah, let's add a little more extra sh shit to the nurses and let's punish them and, and then hopefully they'll change or, or it'll change, which, I mean, doesn't work. Like, we have, we have measurement Monday for our wounds, but that's usually when the wound care team team comes around and checks all the wounds, but we still got to measure them every Monday. And they also do, like, cap change every every Tuesday and, and, and Saturday as well. So we have, like, those things. But those are little things where you can just, just chart in, like, the the charting system. You don't got to write your name anywhere or sign anything. But, you know, we'll see what happens with in 2020 or 2021. See if this, these readmissions keep going up. We're going to need to keep changing things. And usually nurses get the short end of the stick out of all this. And if you keep listening to the podcast, you'll be up to date on this. So that's why we're here for the long-term game, right? Yes, we are. Going back to um, readmissions. So there's a little bit of a statistic that shows patients who report not being involved in their care decisions report that 90, they have a 34% higher odd chance of readmission. Yeah, so I actually looked at the study. The study took people from April 2011 to, to March 2014 and actually took in 24, a little over 24,000 patients. And this and mean age was 52. This was post-op patients. <clears throat> Excuse me. This study showed that patients that got a little bit of patient teaching, like pre-discharge, 18.6 of those patients were readmitted. And they kind of looked at other stats depending on how much teaching they got. So a patient who reported not being involved in their care decisions, their readmission rate was 34%. Wow. And then a patient who reported that they did not receive any kind of written information during a hospital stay, their readmission rate was 24%. And then patients that were not properly educated verbally, were not provided with any kind of you know, written materials, and were not as engaged in their, in their care, 54% readmission rate was for that. So those patients, you know, they were taken care of properly, were not properly educated verbally, were not provided with any kind of, you know, written materials, and were not as engaged in their in their care. 54% readmission rate was for that. So those patients, you know, they were taken care of properly, but they weren't educated, you know, they weren't taught verbally or or via like written. And they also weren't asked questions about their patient care. So they were provided patient care, but they didn't, they wasn't, wasn't patient centered. It was just like general. Half of those patients were readmitted. And I'm not going to lie. I think education is a huge, huge, important strategy to help readmissions. I think that every nurse should be providing great patient education because it makes a difference. Plus it's preventive medicine right. to try other, you know, aspects of eating healthy, whatever you, you teach them. But also the double whammy sort is the hospitals keep putting more things for us to do. Yeah. And the question is, is when is enough? So we we know that we should be doing it, but we neglect it because it's something that could get pushed away and no one knows. And we get we keep getting slammed with more things 
So we push away them probably the one of the most important things to help with readmissions. And I don't think a hospital sees that. It's very true. For that for them, I'm sorry. For them it's just cutting costs, which is making the grid worse for us, meaning it takes more nurses to get patient ratios or we don't get a tech on nights because you don't have 12 patients. So they use all these little, little things to save costs, but they, they're not realizing the bigger cost, which is hospital readmissions, let's just say. Exactly. They, they get fined at 3%. That 3% is usually going to go on to nurses because they're not going to pay the physician any less because the physician is going to end up leaving going to a different hospital. Hospitals want to keep their physicians because they've been doing the same procedures and having the same patients over and over again because these physicians bring in the patients. We're the ones that, that take care of them. Yeah, and not only that is the people that run the hospitals they're, they're usually not nurses. They don't have hospital backgrounds. They have healthcare administration. They weren't bedside nursing and they don't know what it is and how it feels like and what's actually really going on. Yeah. For them, it's just number munching. Oh, this is the fiscal year. Okay, we got to cut costs and that's it. Right, it's a business. That's to make this quarter better, better than the next one. But I mean, I personally like patient teaching because while working in hospital, we see a lot of acute care going on. So we're usually the ones they're treating. We don't do much prevention. I feel like this is my opportunity to provide prevention to the, to the patient to make sure that they know what they're going home with and to make sure that they don't get readmitted for the same issue. And I actually like that aspect. And I, I like, you know, I tell the family members too what, what's going on. I feel like, you know, um, we're very informative on the unit that we work at. So we're very informed on the diseases that we deal with and the, the processes and the plan of care. So why don't we just share that with, with the most, post, most important person being the patient? And you got to have that attitude and mindset. I feel like some nurses aren't meant to be nurses and they don't care for that. They just go there, work the job, pass the meds, do do whatever they have to do to keep the job and that's it. But let's go over the five strategies for providing high effective patient care and education for them. And the first one is discharge planning starts at admission. And why is that important? It's super important because like we said, we're in acute care. A lot of these patients come in feeling fine, and then all of a sudden they feel they feel like crap. You want to admit, you want to tell them why they're admitted in the first place. So hey, this is what's going on. You know your sugar's five hundred. You're in you're in DKA. We're gonna need to try and get your sugar down. We're gonna put this IV in. We need this IV because we gotta put you on an insulin drip. We're also gonna give you D five on the other IV because we don't want your sugars to drop too low too quick. And we're gonna check your blood sugar every hour. Why we're checking it every hour, I know it sucks, but you're on insulin drip. So we got to change up the insulin rate every time you measure sugar. That's why we need all this data together just so we can provide you with the best patient care. And this is the standard practice that we do every time a patient with your condition comes in. And and we have to follow up also with what's going on. And I, I know it's neglected as well. For example, we should take advantage of technology, right? So we could provide them printouts of any kind of pill. Let's just say they have a new pill they're, they're starting or they're on, let's just say, heparin in the hospital. They don't know what it is. They just know they're just getting poked with a needle. Like my dad, he didn't know what he was getting. He's like, yeah, I'm just getting poked with a needle. It thins my blood. It thins my blood, yeah. Actually, well, decreases platelets, you know, but whatever. Use technology if, as a tool. Like go on your MAR, click on reference manual, and print out the little, um, little script of a couple pages for what this medication is. Give it to them explain it to them, let it read it themselves. I know language is a barrier too, but if they speak English, that's fine. You could provide that for yeah. them. And the, and the best way to do this is when you're scanning your medication, be like, hey, this is your metoprolol. This is your heparin. And then at, at the end of the list of medication, just ask, hey, 
are you familiar with any of these medications? And they're usually like, like yeah, that's why, that's why I usually take my blood pressure and the coolness from my, my, my blood. Because my blood, it makes me not get clots. And you're like, okay. So that kind of, you know, now they know what uh, metoprolol is. You know that they know because they've been taking it. You know what coumadin is because they've been taking it as well. But maybe protonics, something new. Like, yeah, I haven't taken any protonics. You know, like, oh, you haven't taken any protonics? And they're like, no. So I'm like, okay, well, let me teach you about protonics. It does this, this, and this. So that kind of, just you reading the medications and just saying, hey, are you familiar with any of these? And they'll tell you yes or no. Sometimes you get those patients that are like, like, yeah, I, I know all these, even though, though they know it, but that's just like their fault. You can't do much. Or what you could do is test them. If you have one of those patients that just says, yeah, to everything, you're just like, yeah, this is my top plot. Do you know what you take it? Do you know what you take it for? And they say, yeah. And you're like, what do, what do you take it for? And they're like, I don't know. They're like, ah, I got you, huh? So mm -hmm. you don't know what, what you're taking. And then you kind of provide teaching. Then, you know, might be stubborn and, you know, just give you attitude for it, but still at least you, you taught them about it and they're for sure not going to forget anymore. And, and that's a good way to do it because you're already there anyways. You're already doing the task of passing meds. Might as well make it more interactive and fun for the patient. And I know sometimes on the WOWs, the work on wheel stations that we have, they have like a little sticker that says, ask me about ask me about the medication you're getting. So they these little title um, post, um, like little posters they put on the back of the computers to have the patient ask us. But we, sh as a you know, as a hospital, we shouldn't be telling the patient to ask those questions. We should be doing it for them because we should understand what they're going through. You know. Yeah, but yeah, sometimes people are embarrassed because technically, we're nurses are like that a little bit. Some patients look at us like we're more superior, more educated, more about that. So that little flashcard on a computer might show that hey, it's okay to ask that question. Yeah, people ask that, ask that question instead of like, am I the only one that's gonna be asked that? I don't want to. I don't want to feel dumb. You know, to ask that question. But if the fact that they have that little note card saying, ask me a question, they're more prone to ask. Yeah. And even another one um, using technology, right? Go on Google, guys. I always do this. I If there's a family and I had a patient that, for example, was vomiting, some blood came in. He had an EDG done and he got um, his varices banded. Mm -hmm. So in the esophagus, there's a lot of um, vessels. And what happens if you have portal hypertension? meaning backup of blood kind of from the liver, you, your vessels could pop if you're a drinker usually. This is for long-term drinkers. So the doctor went in there and he put a little band, basically a rubber band around the, the vein to stop it from bleeding. But they didn't know what the, what the procedure was. So I went on Google, I typed in esophageal varices, I typed in the word banding, I found an image and I explained it to the patient and four other family members. And that's sometimes how I use technology too because most people are visual learners and they're able to visualize the you know the esophagus or they're able to vi visualize where the stent is in the heart and for me i feel very happy when they understand that right. and i love doing patient education like that yeah same there's a handful of patients to ask me when they come up with up with swans you know, they can't see their swan because their neck you, you can't see your neck so a lot of times they ask me to take a picture of it and that gives me opportunity to to tell them how the swan works like hey this yellow cord that's going into your neck goes all the way to your pulmonary artery and when I do your numbers, there's this blue part that actually goes into your right atrium. That's where I shoot my numbers. And then the fluid travels and it gets like a temperature and, and, and it's like a time gauge to see how, you know, efficiently, efficiently your heart pumps blood and how, and then I do my mixed venous, which is right off the PA. Remember, that's the one that's in your pulmonary artery. And that shows how well you're using oxygen. So that gives me a, a good approach because they are, children, they want to learn. Because the fact that they want to see how their swan looks like in, in their neck. That just shows that they're willing to learn, and that's when I go in and go ham. Yeah, and, this, and the second one, after technology, you have to identify the patient's learning style. Everybody learns differently. Not everybody's the same, and you have to learn to assess that. And sometimes you'll assess that, and you can tell that the patient 
doesn't want to learn at all. They're very stubborn. They don't give a shit, unfortunately. And those are the people that I'll still explain it to them because it's my job. But I don't feel guilty if they don't do anything with it because that's I can't force somebody to learn. Right. Yeah. I, I can't teach you if you don't want to be taught. That's kind of thing. But you have your visual learners, you know, and your audio ver uh, learners. So you want to differentiate. Do they just want two pages worth, just two pages of words listing facts, or do they prefer they prefer pictures and with a little bit of writing, or they prefer no writing at all, or they just want to have a conversation with you where they could ask you certain questions and they could kind of follow step step by step. So just just assess your patient, see what learning style is is the best. Me personally, that's I feel like it's most effective. It's just like that I said that visual way of showing them actually with like what's going on and explain the disease process. Yeah, I like the visual with text because like you said, you're, you're not 100% sure what, what they like, so you can do two at once. Next one is you want to consider their limitations and their strengths. So if they have hearing aids, you're probably going to need to talk a little louder and they mostly are going to prefer something more visual because they might mis mishear the words you're saying. And same with someone that wears glasses, especially if they have like bifocals and are like four inches thick where, you know, they got a, you know, you're like, you have a piece of paper and they're struggling to look at it. They're like, you know, holding it two feet in front of them, then going back and forth, those are probably more beneficial from like audio. Just because of the fact, the fact that they probably do more audio at home than in visual if they can't see properly. And make sure if, if they're blind, you don't want to hand them a pamphlet. It's not going to work. You said what? If they're, they're blind, blind, you're not going to hand them a pamphlet. I'm so sorry. I thought you said if they're bl blonde, don't hand them a pamphlet. I'm like, <laughs> who are you going after right now, man? Myself. Yourself. And if they're blind, obviously you don't want to worry. And if they're deaf, you don't want to, you know, play a podcast in the background. Yeah. You want to give them YouTube. I, I actually told my patient before to check out the podcast on a specific, um, I think it was the, the episode about vaccines. I told him to listen to it, except it was kind of quick story, guys. It was kind of awkward because the patient's wife came back and in that podcast episode about vaccines, don't know what number it is. Peter mentions how the vaccine, the vaccine, um, what is it called? The hoax, the hoax? or the, the, like the fake news kind of, it started oh. from a porn star and um, she knew who it was and she's like, I don't know if she's a porn star. I'm just like, you know what, to be honest, I'm I'm not too sure. Uh, my my friend looked up the, the research, not me. I'm like, I don't know what to say. But just funny how she came back at 5 a.m. and we're talking about basically the anti-vaxxers and the porn star. She's like, well, she does look pretty good. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, man. I can't believe I'm having this conversation. Yeah, that's funny, dude. That's good. They're, good they're listening. So, you know, that kind of shows that they're doing it. Listen to the podcast and actually learn about this so kind that, of stuff. That's one of my patient um, education tools. Check out the podcast. There you go. Um, anyways, the next one is you want to stimulate the patient's interests. Just like Peter said, you want to maybe see and ask them and question them about a specific pill. You want to ask them about the disease process. Or you want to ask like little open-ended questions. So it gives them the ability to kind of talk. And you could assess like what they actually know. If it's like heart failure, you could ask them like, do you know why you're in the hospital, do you know why you were readmitted re for heart failure? If it's a stroke, you wanna ask them the two different types or why they got TPA, you know, if um, if they got stented, why don't you ask them, do you know why you have the stents or do you know why you have to be on Plavix, which is an anti-platelet um, anti um, regulator, whatever, for that reason. So you always wanna like really test the patient's interest and stimulate that room for the for learning right if you're trying to educate your patient and he's just not being like res responsive or not giving any kind of feedback and just being a dick what i always do because i work with lvads i always say hey if you don't take your coumadin your pump's gonna cut off and you're gonna die you know if you bring in the word death into it, if you don't do this this and this you're gonna die a lot of times that they perk up a little bit they're like 
they're like, shit, you know, I didn't do that and end up in a hospital. And you end up in a hospital because, yeah, because you're not following our instructions last time. So next time when might not get so lucky, you might just full out die. And there's also those patients that are usually like, let's just say the alcoholics, man. The ETOH patients, you can tell them drinking is bad for you. This is literally going to kill you. You're literally going to be coming into the hospital and getting your stomach tapped to get rid of fluid. And you'll tell them all this scary stuff, but like their connections are so strong and they're so addicted and they haven't followed neuroplasticity, right? To break the habit of being themselves. They continue drinking and they continue coming for ETOH withdrawals. And it sucks seeing them. And those are the people that I usually tell them what I have to. And they do whatever they want with that because they're so stubborn. Right. Or like your drug use patients that they overdose and they get brought to the hospital and it's happened four or five times. And like there are free flyers where every time they overdose, they feel fine because they get saved. They keep getting lucky and lucky, lucky. And eventually that luck runs out. But they're going to keep pushing themselves to the limit just to get that, that fix. Why? Because the drugs and alcohol are just so strong and so mentally encapsulated in them where they are going to do no matter what. And now they have this kind of like a feeling for like a, a second life that, hey, it's okay. I mean, they're not thinking in their head that it's okay to have an overdose, but they're saying, if I overdose, I do have this backup of getting saved. I've been yeah. saved four times in a row. You know, I'll probably get saved again, but it's not always happens. And that's when people overdose and, and they, they die. They get too cocky. You know, they, you know, they just keep doing these drugs and they keep drinking. And eventually, you know, you know, they don't get, you know, they go to cardiac arrest or the ambulance doesn't get there on time, and now you know they're intubated, and we just called them for two minutes. We have yeah, we brought them back, but the brain damage is so severe that they're not gonna be themselves. They're anymore. anoxic, and I had another guy too. Sometimes I'm like, I question how much I could talk on the podcast when it comes to like HIPAA and stuff. But I had this patient that she was 24, dude just came in multiple times for drug overdoses, and his favorite was like some kind of synthetic Xanax. Dude was literally before I came back. I saw him like a month ago. Uh, he was on BiPAP. Signed himself AMA. The other time I saw him, the guy has fucking swearing here. Sorry, mm-hmm. guys. Tis, tis. Tis, tis, indeed. He has um, purple hair, like a mohawk. Guy comes in for, again, Xanax synthetic overdose. This time he's intubated. The family already knows the drill. His, he lives with his parents. They already go home. We extubate him in the morning. Guy signs him himself out AMA again. Like sometimes that just, that really bothers you a nurse because you can't really get through those people. And that's when you feel like hopeless as a, as an advocate for the patient or as an educator. Right. Yeah. You, you literally burn yourself out. It's like this guy keeps going back and forth, back and forth. It's the same, same, same here it is for the same exact thing every time. And I got to provide the same damn education each time. And you know, he's actually going to listen to it. And I got to, especially if he's like, you know, rowdy or he throws some bullshit at you. He's like, I got to deal with his ass now. Nobody wants to deal with him, but now I have to deal with him. And every, and people hate the guy. I mean, not that they don't hate him, but they just hate taking care of him because he's just a pain in the ass. Yeah. And then he just sells himself, signs, himself, signs himself out AMA. Just like, well, that was 12 hours worth for shit. Because sometimes you get that little dopamine rush of like a reward of happiness of a patient that understands what's happening. And you know you did a good job. Right. Or you want to be that, that nurse that's like, you know, I'm going to go the extra mile and, you know, I'll provide extra patient care for him. You know, I'll, I'll try to focus more on him. Maybe, you know, he'll, he'll change. And, you know, and he, he's all happy this. He walks out all happy. Like, yeah, he thanks you. He's like, thank you so much for you doing all, all this for me and taking your, your time to talk with me. And then next month, 
bang, same shit. Yep. You're just like, dude, what the hell, man? Like, I did all this for you, and you're still here for, for, for like, the same stuff. And then you have the nurses that take things very personally, too hard, and they sometimes take their emotions home from the hospital, and they get burnt out like that because they care so much, and they, some, some nurses you hear, they think about the patients when they go home, and this happens, and I do it too, but, like, you have to unplug, guys, because this... It's a stressful job that we do. I mean, we're literally dealing with death and dying and all the other aspects. And uh, what is it called? Physicians. I have a little story, too, about a physician, if you want to hear it. Like a nurse practitioner. I don't yeah, think we have I'll, time for this one. I'll take a listen. I'm all ears, Matthew. All ears. All right, guys. Well, we have one more tip to cover, including family members. Well, does the story relate to the, to the prior tip? or No, it's just course? it's just me not taking shit from a nurse practitioner. Mm that decided to be smart and call with me with attitude. So I kind of like filed the policy and I filed a little risk master on her. There you go, but risk masters though. File, file them risk masters, dude. But it's long story short, it was just like one where if you're in the intensive care unit, a physician should talk to another physician for the consult. And sometimes we just call the consultant because we don't have time, but the, the physician should still do that. And I was fighting for a consult to get a nephrologist onto this patient because of low urine output for like six hours. I asked the intensivist, they're like, ask their primary. Well, I asked the primary and they're, they're um, internal doctors. So the, um, the internal doctors have an AP, a nurse practitioner on basically, or a, what's the other one, nurse practitioner or PA. a PA. And I asked her for one and like an hour and a half later, she puts in a consult for a nephrologist, like 10 minutes before change of shift. I'm like, you mother, smarty, huh? Because then she leaves and I leave and, you know, so I, I perfect serve her back. I message her back. Hey, it's physician to physician. She calls me with a freaking fit. There's attitude of, I've been working here for two years and I have never heard this issue. I've never heard calling physician to physician. I'm like, really? And I kind of, me and her kind of were bumping heads because I, I don't want to take shit from her. I'm like, well, nurses are usually pushovers. I'm not going to do that. Well, she's like, if you call, you call, but I'll, I'll just um, tell the day team. So I told my, I messaged my manager right now. I'm like, listen, dude, I'm not going to take this verbal abuse. Like, how do they not know this if it's in policy? And I filed the risk master. Yeah, there you go. A lot of nurses, you know, they take a lot of lip from doctors and they just take it. They don't file risk master or anything. But physician, a nurse bullying, that, 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 that does occur. Yep. And you have full right to report this. And you do more harm of not reporting it. Just because if this physician did this to you, more likely... This vision is to somebody else. And it's going to keep happening until this gets gets dressed. Maybe we could do a nurse, uh, not a nursing, but a podcast episode about this. Like lateral bullying or even like physician That'd be pretty cool. bullying. Let's do that when we get the guests on. Yeah. So we'll do move on to, to our fifth tip. Well, thank you, Matt, for, for the story. Matt, take, take shit from nobody except from his patients. I don't care if you're a physician or whoever. I don't care if you have a master's or a PhD. We're even. I see you eye to eye. Come at me. <laughs> there you go. Business. Right, so the fifth one is to include a family. So this is kind of could be a little bit a little bit iffy, just because some patients, even though they come in with family or they come in with people with them to the hospital, they don't want them fully included or know exactly what's going on. So that's why when I get admission or like a transfer, I always tell the family, "Hey, can you wait in the waiting room? We're just gonna get your patient or get your um, significant other or your family member ready. We're just gonna wash up the chlorhexidine, change your gown and all that, give a little privacy and release." Okay, and that's the time where I. That's time that I take to ask the patient, hey, um, who's that that's here with you? And they say, oh, this, this, and this. And I'm always like, would you want them included into like my teaching or patient care? 
And they usually say, yeah, but there has been a few times where, where it's like, I don't, they tell me that they don't want them included in this. They don't want to know any information. They want the information to go from the patient to them themselves, not for me to the family member, which is completely okay. But the fact that you isolate the patient, that allows you time to just be one-on-one with the patient and see what they actually, actually want to tell their family member. Because there is people that get abused and when that family member is in the room, they obviously get scared and they don't want to say anything wrong because they know that when they go home, that family member isn't going to you know, abuse them or it's going to lead to negative consequences. So that gives you that one-on-one patient, patient communication, patient contact where no one's there besides you and a patient and it's a free room to talk. Yeah. So it's good to do. I just had so many stories I want to share, but there's just no time. Yeah, plus the camera died. One of the cameras died, guys. But it's 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 so important to do that. And you're right. I think when the patient gets admitted, you ask all those questions. And sometimes when you educate not only the patient but the family member, sometimes they're a little bit more healthcare literate or they know how the patient is, so they're going to hold them accountable when they go home after discharge. Exactly. Or a lot, a lot of times when we get this elderly population, their kids or the family members are the ones actually taking care of the patient. They're the ones that are doing the dressing changes. Even though you still have to provide um, education to the patient, you got to educate the family too because if they're the ones going to be doing the stuff or the, if they're the ones that are going to be checking the patient's blood pressure and giving them, them a topolol, you want to make sure they know the parameters and know exactly what's going on because they're the main caregivers. Yeah, or like my, uh, for example, my aunt, she had the open heart surgery, but my uncle takes care of all the pills and knows what have to be given and he's the one that's on top of her. Hey, did you take your pills today? Hey, did you take your Coumadin and all that? So yes, guys, not only is... The patient involved in the education also has it should be the family because it's holistic and that family member is going to probably hold that patient accountable when they go home because right. we don't know what the family dynamics are when the patient leaves yeah exactly all right well thank you guys for joining talked about what GERD, zantac if you have zantac it's actually the recommendation if the recommendation is to if you take zantac and you prescribe zantac you should keep taking it but for ones that don't need Zantac, you should stay away from it and try to use a different over-the-counter medication for Zantac. Or if you use it, try out those little tips that we had to prevent GERD before you just taking the pill. Like change your lifestyle habits first. Yeah, yeah. maybe food triggering it. It's a lot easier to stop eating a food than take a pill for it. Exactly. And patient education, we covered the five tips, why it's important. Hospitals pay a lot of money for readmissions, guys. It could be affecting your damn um, raises billions billions of dollars if not trillions as trump would say so guys make sure we are really educating patients properly and if we're not find the barrier to it tell your freaking unit and solve that barrier guys yep have a going guys we'll see you guys next week do we care